All right. Good morning, y'all. How are y'all doing today? Good. It's good to see you. Welcome to the story. My name's Eric. If we don't know each other, I'm the lead pastor here. And I um, want to say welcome to everybody here in our Museum District campus. Uh, and uh, also those, those of you that are joining us online, whether you're on Facebook right now or through the website, uh, thestory.church, or on YouTube, we're really glad you're here and you're part of this community um, through this technology. So be sure to check in the, in the comments if you can and let us know where you're tuning in from. And uh, hey, if, if you're new here, special welcome to you. Thanks for uh, giving us a shot, I guess. And I know it's weird. Churches are always a little weird, different, different kinds of weird, different flavors of weird. And we're no less weird than any other church probably you'll ever see. And maybe more weird in some ways. But if you're looking for a place where you are safe to, and free to ask your questions about God and religion and uh, Christianity and the Bible, um, that's what the story is here for. And so we are really a community of b believers and skeptics that are following Jesus together. Nobody here has it all figured out, but there are clear indications of, uh, of where uh, Jesus would have us go. As we look to the scriptures, we look to Jesus first, and, and that's true as well as uh, regarding today's topic, which is not going to be super fun uh, for me to talk about, but you're going to have a lot to talk about on the way home today, I promise. All right, so today's message is actually part three of seven. So this is a seven-part series called The Summer of Love. And uh, many of you uh, know sort of what's going down this summer. We've got seven messages on dating and sex and romance and marriage, um, coupled with the Maybe God podcast, which is sort of our in-house podcast, um, doing something called Operation Matchmaker. We're getting very close to matching some couples and sending them on dates. And so thank you all for your prayers and participation in uh, that regard. This is the craziest thing maybe we've ever done as a church and um, really excited to see where it goes <laughs> from here. Okay, um, but these, these messages, all seven of them, basically are designed to address and debunk seven of the most common lies that are being perpetuated in our culture today, lies about these core issues like, like dating and, you know, our pursuit of love and romance and sex and marriage, these things that are so near to all of our hearts. And I know that not everyone here is single. Somewhere around half of the stories community is not married. So for about half of our community, this is a, a direct hit. For about half of you, I see you just looking at me like, why did we come today? Like, I understand that, and I'm glad that now that you're married, you're no longer dating on the apps or anything like that, right? Amen? Okay. However, everybody here, regardless of your marital status, you know and love somebody who is um, single, uh, someone who is not married, someone who is trying to navigate this uh, dating scene as it stands today, and if you talk to them about it, they'll tell you that it's not pretty, and it's especially not hospitable to someone with a Christian worldview, let's say. So that's the question before us, is how can a Christian person on the single scene navigate those murky waters? And so every week we're debunking a different lie. In week one, uh, the lie was that the purpose of marriage is to find someone who makes you happy. And if you want to, you can find a series of someones who make you happy. And as soon as someone doesn't make you happy anymore, you move on because the purpose is to be happy. And we talked about how that lie couldn't be further from the truth. And, and if anything, for Christians, the purpose of marriage isn't to find someone who makes you happy, but to find someone to marry. Dating as a Christian doesn't make sense unless it's leading to or pointing toward or intended to be for 
uh, marriage. Otherwise, it, it just sort of devolves into something worldly that you can't really avoid it. Pastor Kale talked last week about how dating itself originated from the world of like prostitution. Like the word dating didn't emerge on the scene until the 1900s. And dating itself took the place of courtship and calling and all that that used to be how you met someone and married someone, right? But dating originally was just a man of means booking or paying for a date in a woman of the night's calendar. Like that's where dating comes from. And so maybe that's why we're so bad at it because it's still new to the human experience. I don't know. And it's a little bit scary, I'll be honest, sometimes how closely resembling prostitution that modern dating um, becomes, frankly. Like, it's, it's hard to distinguish sometimes, um, in some circles at least. And, and a lot of people are made to feel cheap um, on the dating scene, so there's some overlap for sure. And, and so, so there's a lot going on with this lie. The, the purpose is not just to find someone to make you happy, it's to find someone to marry. The second lie that we talked about last week, one that a lot of people buy into, is that quantity is the secret to dating success. The more you put yourself out there, the more dates you go on, the more people you meet, the more faces you swipe, the more apps you're on, the more likely you are to find success on the dating scene. And, and Pastor Kale talked about how that, that lie is, is, should, be, should be disavowed in favor of the biblical truth, that it's really not so much about quantity as it is about quality and the quality of the connections that you're making based on you know, seeking someone out um, based on values and priorities rather than just you know, numbers and a numbers game. Now, uh, today for part three, we're, we're going to talk about some pretty heavy stuff, right? So it's, it's not something that I get super excited to talk about because I'm not going to make any friends at all today. And I like to be liked. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I, I know it's probably a, a character flaw. I like to be liked, but no one's going to like me after this one, all right? So, uh, except for parents who want to tell their kids what I'm about to tell them. Other than that, <laughs> no one else. So today we're going to talk about um, premarital and extramarital sex, okay? So the, the lie that we are tackling today is that sex is whatever you want it to be. Sex is whatever you want it to be. So what that means is everything about sex and our sexual experience is relative. And you have it your way and I'll have it mine and let's, let's not interfere with each other. So if sex for you is deeply spiritual and sacred, that's great for you. Keep it to yourself. If sex for you is just physical and just for fun, that's great for you. You know, enjoy it. Don't judge the other people. If sex is everything for you, great. If sex is nothing for you, fine. If sex for you is meant to be between you and your spouse and no one else, okay, whatever, that's great. But if sex for you is meant to be for you and your spouse and whoever else you invite in, or if it's meant to be between you and whoever you feel like being with, and, and you know, that's to each his own. That's, that's basically the motto of those who live according to this lie, to each their own. Whatever someone thinks is right or good in their own eyes and is right for them, then that's fine, and it should be fine for um, the rest of us. That's really the most important rule. It might be the only rule, other than be true to yourself, which is just another lie. But, but the, the be true to yourself is sort of one of the rules that you live under with this lie. The other one is, and this is rule number one, never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, should you think that you have the right to tell anyone that what they're doing sexually is wrong. You don't have that right, according to this lie, 
And if you believe otherwise, you, who are you to speak that over someone else? And, and you should just keep it to yourself. That's sort of the relativistic argument um, behind this argument. And it occurred to me a while ago that um, a lot of people say, most people, I would say, if not all people, like say that they espouse this view. Even many Christians will say that they espouse that view, that to each their own, within, within reason, to each their own. But I'm starting to suspect that no one really believes that, right? No one actually believes that sex and what's good and bad with sex is relative, completely. And it occurred to me when I was having a conversation with a, a really high up pastor in the, in the denomination I used to be a part of, many of us together used to be a part of, the United Methodist Church. And I was in a discernment time and I was trying to figure out if I had a future in the United Methodist Church. And this was a high ranking sort of Methodist pastor guy. And he was mad at me and, uh, for things that I had done like, uh, and said, really things I'd said publicly and uh, this was, uh, just to clear the air, no one, anyone here knows, okay? So, and this, just, I want to say that. So, this was a conversation we were having among, like, just two colleagues. And I, I really wanted to know if I could see a future for myself in good conscience in the United Methodist denomination. And his points about the things that I had said, as I, I had espoused a more traditional kind of biblical view of sexuality and and he said that was um, hurtful to those who practice otherwise and, and even, you know, borderline hateful. And uh, he said two, two things to me in that conversation that I'll never forget. One thing he said I'll never forget because he was so wrong and was so clearly wrong that I feel like he should have known better. The second thing that he said that I'll never forget was so right that I'll never forget it, all right? So first, whenever I pushed back a little bit and, and you know, responded to his critiques of my viewpoints, and I said, okay, so are you saying there's no kind of sexual relationship that you can point to and say, no, that's, that's wrong? There's no kind of sexual engagement that you think is fundamentally wrong? And he was like, no, of course I don't believe that. And I said, okay, well, where do you draw the line? And he said, well, for me, the only way that's right is two consenting adults. And when I pressed him further on that, I was like, wait, why? Why two consenting adults? I was with him on the consenting adults. Anyone should be with him on the consenting adults. That's just common sense. You don't need the Bible to tell you that good sex should involve consenting adults. Amen? Okay, simple stuff, okay? This is, okay, I hope everyone agrees. Okay, but it was the two part that I couldn't get my head around because if you're saying that a biblical interpretation is not a mandate to, to tell others what's right and wrong, then then why just two? Like, where, where does that come from? And I know to some of you it might seem arbitrary. It might seem like I'm nitpicking or playing hypotheticals or whatever. But, but really, I wanted to know, what if more than two people, that was how they expressed love and experienced love? What if, what if, although to some you say I'm a bigot, what if to swingers you're a bigot? It's possible. People that practice polyamory, open relationships, might look at someone that says the only way to do this right is two consenting adults and say, you're judging me. It's hateful. It's hurtful. And, and he said his response when I asked him why he felt that way or what, what, what it was that he based his reason on for drawing the line where he drew it, he said, it just seems to me that it's problematic when more than two people get involved. And I was like, probably. Like, that sounds right. But I'm not sure that it seems to me is a good enough reason to 
or a good, strong enough foundation to build a whole philosophy of sexual ethics on. Because what seems to me one day might not seem to me the next. And so what do you build in this worldview on? That's when it occurred to me just how thin any worldview or, or, or sexual framework uh, that's built upon anything just within yourself can be. And, and I, I realized, you know, how badly we need to find something that is uh, fundamentally true and not just something that feels right or good, if we're going to find something worthwhile. So I realized in that moment just how wrong and thin that framework is, but it's so common. If some of you are like, pastors believe this? Yes. Have you not noticed how many pastors and churches are waving the white flag on sexual like ethics? Not even LGBTQ stuff. Just like, let's talk to our kids about abstaining from, mar- from sex until marriage. Right? Let's talk to our kids about purity and all that. Now it's just, you're just criticized for purity culture and how harmful that is. Like that's, that's the narrative now. And so many churches are just staying silent. Silence is compliance now with the world. Okay, so this is very common. And I noticed when he said that just how wrong he was, but there was another count on which he was right. And that was when he said um, to me, who are you, he said, who are you to tell anyone else what's right and wrong and what to do with their bodies? And he had me on that one. I was like, you're right. Like, I am no one. And I want you to know. I want you to know. I genuinely feel this way. I am no one to tell you my opinion authoritatively. Okay, so my opinion should matter nothing to you. Like, it should not matter at all. It doesn't, shouldn't matter at all to me what I feel like saying or what my opinions are any given day. I wish I could tell you something that everybody would like. Let's just have a big old party and do whatever we want. I mean, I mean, you'd love me so much if I told you that. We'd have a great time for a while, I guess. I don't know how that works. Never really been to one of those parties. But anyway, <laughs> seems like that's what people want. But I can't tell you that. Why? Because it's not about my opinion. I have learned over time that I, I cannot trust my opinions or my views or my politics or my feelings, least of all. The Bible says the heart is, is deceptive above all else. I've, I've found that to be true. My heart is deceptive, and so I need a greater filter for truth, something that is timeless, something that is time-tested, something that is trustworthy. And for me, and you might not be here yet, but for me, I have found the Word of God, the Bible, to be a time-tested and trustworthy filter for truth. And what should matter to all of us isn't anyone's opinion, yours or mine, but what is fundamentally true. And and that's especially true, I think, when we're talking about something as profound as sex and sexuality. So um, that is what I look to the Bible for. What what does the Bible say then in, in response to today's lie? The lie of today, once again, is that sex is uh, whatever you want it to be. The truth in response to that lie is that sex is God's gift. All these words matter. These are not empty words. Sex is God's gift meant only for marriage. For Christians, marriage is clearly defined as well. We talk about this a lot. Marriage, biblically, is a man and woman living in covenant uh, for a lifetime, right? So that's what sex is for biblically. Not making this up. This isn't what I feel like telling you. Just the first sexual activity that's described in the Bible happens between the first two people, Adam and Eve, at the consummation of their marriage. In Genesis 4, verse 1, it says, Adam made love to his wife, Eve. 
And, and some of your Bibles in Genesis 4, verse 1, might say Adam knew Eve. You ever, you ever noticed how the Bible will say knew instead of had sex with or laid with or, or made love to? Sometimes that word knew pops up, and that's because it was a word in Hebrew that meant um, intimately uh, was aware of or intimately was acquainted with. And so to know someone deeper than anyone else knows this person is to become one flesh with them. And that's what a husband and a wife do in that act of union. So it is not something to be trifled with, not something to be taken lightly. Every time two people or three or four come together in sexual union, they're giving themselves to one another in a very real way. They're giving part of themselves to one another in kind of an irrevocable way. You leave part of yourself with the person you've given yourself to. This is just, I don't even need the Bible to tell you this. Most of us know this. Science can even prove this if we really wanted to go down that road. It's more than just, you know, an animalistic urge that we take and we leave. And so the Bible, again and again, there's more sex in the Bible than you might imagine. There's couples that come together, knowing each other, uh, making love to each other, uh, laying with each other, sharing a tent with all of that is um, language, biblical language for sex. And all of these um, examples of good sex, every example of sex that produces something good in the Bible is within the confines or within the covenant of marriage. There are no, in other words, biblical examples of good, healthy, non-marital sexual relationships. Zero, okay? All of the sex that is lifted up as, you know, emblematic of God's gift happens within marriage. Now, obviously, there are sexual accounts in the Bible that aren't good. And they're described in the Bible as situations of um, coercion. Think David and Bathsheba. Adultery. Rape. You know, all kinds of other sinful behaviors, and that's prostitution being another one. Those are all examples of sexual activity that's not within marriage, but it's pretty clear what the Bible's trying to tell us. And in the New Testament, that trend continues even more clearly, encouraging believers to not give in to looking at sex the way the world does. Look, we think our world's filthier than it's ever been sometimes. I think we just get a little bit wrapped up in ourselves and maybe a little bit on, you know, TikTok too much or something. Like, every, everyone is taking their clothes off. This is wild. And so that's true maybe, but it doesn't mean the world hasn't always been that way. I mean, the first generation Christians were tempted in every way. That was the number one thing they brought up was be careful with sexual immorality, such as in passages like this one from 1 Corinthians 7. If you want to have your mind blown, I don't have time to do it today, but 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, it'll give you a whole new perspective on what God's idea for us in marriage and sex really is. So there's your homework, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. But I'm going to read chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now, for the matters you wrote about, so the congregation in Corinth had written Paul a letter, and Paul is quoting their letter here. This was their quote. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So they had written to Paul saying, so let's get this straight. <laughs> You're saying it's good for us to not do that thing we all really, really, really want to do and like and love doing. 
And, and they're asking that because Jesus was celibate. Paul was celibate. Paul's lifting up celibacy as the best way. And he's basically saying that, look, marriage is for losers. Because, because he's like, if you can't control yourself sexually, find yourself a spouse. Otherwise, just serve the Lord. That's Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, all right? So, I mean, but let's be fair. That's, most of us are losers. Amen? Amen. All right. <laughs> but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Paul's acknowledging our innate desire for this, this beautiful thing, this sexual intimacy, but he is placing it safely where it belongs within the covenant bonds of marriage. And then in Hebrews 13, um, verse 4, it says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Now, this is important because um, he lists both adultery and sexual immorality side by side as though they're, they're different things. And that's important because I have more conversations than you might imagine with people who are looking hard for a loophole to have premarital sex, like, like working harder at Bible study than they've ever worked in their lives <laughs> to find that loophole. And I've searched myself. I'd love to find that loophole, especially before I got married. It'd be great. Let's find it. But it's not there. But, but one of the things people will say is, well, the Bible clearly condemns adultery. Like, you know, don't sleep around on your spouse, but show me the verse where it says verbatim, thou shalt not have premarital sex. Well, that verse doesn't exist verbatim. And so a lot of folks who aren't married will see that as the loophole they've always been looking for. However, this uh, sexual, you know, this uh, adultery and sexual immorality is helpful to us because clearly not all sexual immorality is adultery. There are lots of other categories of sexual immorality, such as premarital sex, uh, such as pornography, um, which we are going to talk about next week. I was going to talk about that as part of this sermon, but when I wrote that sermon, it was two and a half hours long, <laughs> and I decided to split it up. So that's next week. So I'm sure I'll see all of you back next week for that one. <laughs> Probably shouldn't have even announced it. The word for sexual immorality in the New Testament is the Greek word porneia, from which comes, uh, you know, our, our word for, that's where we get our word pornography. But it really means any illicit sexual activity, any sexual activity outside of where God intended it to be, which is marriage, the marriage bed. So, the question, I guess, has to be asked, why are we going to spend two out of seven weeks in this series that is meant to help singles and folks that are looking for love and romance and marriage and all that, why are we going to spend two out of seven weeks on sex and pornography? I'll tell you, it's because as I've talked to single Christians on the dating scene today and as I've done my research about what's going wrong and why there's such a high, high level of dissatisfaction with today's dating scene... And as I've heard the stories of frustration and absolute, just frankly, dehumanization on the dating scene today, mostly from women, but also some stories from men, it has occurred to me that this world's twisted, contorted, perverted view of sexual ethics lies at the heart of every problem single people are having on the dating scene today. And to get anywhere, 
And really, in this conversation, we're going to have to deal with the issues that are uh, raised um, with uh, sex and outside of marriage in any capacity, okay? So um, the, the idea, again, in that uh, the refutation of the lie is that sex is God's good gift, right, for us, intended exclusively for marriage. The idea that sex is God's gift for us is, is so <laughs> overlooked, right? So God gave us this beautiful and profoundly intimate, self-giving gift whereby we can know someone better than just about anyone else knows them, and we can be known by somebody better than anyone else has ever known us, to be shared with one person in exclusive covenant. And most of us, whether it's through actual interactions with other people or through pornography, the great majority of us, even the majority of Christians, are treating that good and sacred gift like a cheap plastic toy they throw in a Happy Meal to be played with for a moment and discarded. And our culture has made sex disposable. It wasn't meant to be disposable. But when you make sex disposable, guess what else you make disposable? People. And the way we look at sex, together with the onset of like the dating apps where we can just literally treat faces and people like they're cows at an auction, just nope, 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 maybe nope, nope. Like the dehumanization of it is having a real effect uh, with our single brothers and sisters, okay? And, and what's happening is uh, really sad to watch. As ungodly men, I'm not only gonna pick on men, but as a man, I feel a special calling to go after the guys on this one. Ungodly men, not all men, ungodly men are out there just using women. Using them until they're done with them and throwing them aside. If you're one of those men, I want you to know you will have to answer to their father. And as a father of a daughter, I promise you that's not a conversation you're going to want to have. Also, these ungodly men that are playing women and discarding them are giving all men a certain reputation. And the fact that just enough women are willing to play along, not all women, not even, I don't think most women, but just enough women are willing to play along and sort of feed that beast applies pressure to single women who would like to, all things being equal, seek the heart of God and do the right thing, but now they're pressured to perform and compete for men's attention by doing things they know they shouldn't do. It is so toxic, man. It's so harmful. And, and it, these days, <laughs> I wish I could tell you everything, but some things are just not meant for the pulpit, I guess. But like, these, like if a woman these days goes on three dates with a man, three dates, there is an, almost an ironclad expectation that she'll share her bed with him, she'll go home with him. And if she refuses to go to bed with him after three dates, she will risk being rejected and shamed and discarded. She'll risk having wasted her time on yet another man who just wanted her for her body. And that wears you down. And likewise, look, if a godly young man, and there are godly young men out there, Believe it or not, don't believe the hype. If a godly young man 
tells certain women that he's dating that he's a virgin who's saving himself for marriage. Maybe you're not a virgin, but, but you've decided, you know, starting now or recently when you met Jesus, you're saving your, yourself for marriage and all of that. Like, in this twisted world, you're the weirdo. Like, they'll say, what's wrong with him? They'll question his masculinity. They'll call him a simp. That's another word I learned through this whole process of study and research. We have couples that are cohabitating, couples here that are cohabitating without being married, and I'm not here to judge or condemn. I know people have their reasons. Some people get into a cohabitation situation out of really good intentions. You intend to get married one day, and I know how harmful and hurtful the church's words to you can be sometimes. Sometimes there are churches that will not marry you if you are living together. And I'm over here like, isn't that the only way to fix it? Like, let's, <laughs> what are we doing? Like, let's do it today, now, after the service. I'll stop the sermon right now. <laughs> if anybody here who's living together wants to get married, I will. It's time, okay? And of course, the, the, the reasons are varied and sundry, but some of the most common ones you hear, and I, I bought a used car this week, and... It reminded me of one of the stupid excuses I'll hear for this sort of behavior, from, even from nominal Christians who will say, Eric, you would never buy a car without test driving it first. And it's like they don't hear themselves. And I, I, I wonder if they're aware of how that analogy itself reveals just how dehumanized we become. If someone gives themselves to you in that way, they are not a commodity. A woman is not a car. A man isn't either. We're talking about human beings with hearts and souls, people made in God's image, and we're going to boil it down to test driving a car? Give me a break. Look, I bought plenty of cars that I test drove, and they became lemons. It's not about the test drive. You don't even know. You don't know until you give yourself to someone in the best God-ordained way to give yourself to someone in that way is within the confines of marriage. The dating game we're all playing, singles are playing these days, is just a game that nobody wins and everybody loses. Everybody gets what they say they want, but nobody gets what they know they need in the long run. It's vicious and dehumanizing. Now, nothing about the modern dating scene or a sex scene really is working for people, uh, but if <laughs> you speak up as a Christian in this culture, you know, it's kind of like the guy that says, I'm going to wait until I'm, they'll make a movie about you and call it 40-year-old virgin, and you'll be the joke that everyone tells. Like, if you stand up and say, I'm a Christian, and this is what I believe about sex, and I'm not going to feed into this lie, I'm going to wait, they'll say, you're the weirdo. Even though any objective analysis of the world as it is today and the, the culture that we're living in would tell you that what we're doing is not good for us. It's not about religion. Take religion out of it. Look objectively at the fruit that this tree is bearing and ask yourself if what's happening today is good or healthy or even anything close to that. A few years ago, I retweeted something on Twitter that was this, uh, this great Christian academic guy. He, he posted this thing about like what the world would look like if everyone voluntarily, freely chose the sexual ethics described in the Bible. 
and this is just a thought experiment. This isn't, we're not trying to enforce this or anything, but he was like, if everyone lived according to biblical sexual ethics, imagine what a different world we would be living in. Would there be sex trafficking? Would there be child sex trafficking? Of course not. Would there be exploitation of vulnerable people? Of course not. There would be no more rape. There would be no more victims of pornography. There would be no more sexually transmitted diseases like everyone's worried about on the dating scene today. There would be far less divorce, far fewer deadbeat dads. There would be no cowardly men stepping out on their wives of 20 years to go find a younger model. There would be no prostitution and nothing of the sort if everyone lived according to God's design for us. Now, I know that's unrealistic, but what stood out to me about, about this Twitter thing was how much heat he took. And people that were responding to his post saying, you Christians always trying to control people's body. Just let us live and let live. Let us be happy. And all the while, no one's happy. The irony is lost on us. Maybe part of the problem is with us. Let's be honest, church. Maybe we overemphasize God's no's and underemphasize his yeses. I think that's fair to say. Maybe we fail to teach our kids when we're telling them to abstain from sex until marriage. Maybe we fail to remind them that God made this wonderful thing. He invented it. Sex didn't come from the devil. It came from God. He made it to be as good as it is. And he gave us these boundaries to put around it, not because it's so bad, but because it's so good. And anything that good is bound to be powerful, and so we must be careful lest it consume us. That's why we have these boundaries. Here's what all this means and a little bit about what it doesn't. The first thing that the biblical view of sex and marriage means for all of us is that we have these rules, we have these guidelines and boundaries because he loves you. God loves you. He doesn't hate you. Regardless of your past or choices you've made before, he loves you. And, and we see an example of this from the supposedly hateful Old Testament, right? From Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. It says, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience with him, to love him and serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today. And here it is, for your own good. Everything he gives you is for your own good, including something like sex, including marriage, including, you know, uh, intimacy, which I think is what we're all really looking for. And that's an important reminder. Like, as good as something may be, it's not the best thing. Only God is that. If sex is the best thing in your life, then sex is your God. I'm afraid that's where a lot of people are today. There are better things than sex. There are more intimate things you can do than have sex. And I've told married couples before that if you want to take a step even further in your marriage, take one another's hands and go to a dark room together and pray for each other out loud. It's an even more intimate act than the sexual union. And so let's be sure to keep sex in its proper place as God designed it. Secondly, all of this means that God can and will restore you. He can and will restore you no matter if you've made mistakes or what your past looks like. 
I want you to know today, I know most of us have things in our past that we're ashamed of. I myself am chief among us, right? It's like I, I have a lot in my past to be ashamed of, and I've talked a lot about it, talk more about it next week and all of that, and I'm not afraid to talk about it. Because I know that our God is a God of restoration. The Bible is just one story after another of someone who was sexually broken, being redeemed and restored by God and putting their life back together by his grace. Think about King David, for example, who committed some of the worst sexual sort of atrocities and adulteries and all kinds of things. This is what he wrote in the aftermath of the Bathsheba uh, incident in Psalm 51, verses 10 to 12. And I offer this as a prayer that some of you might take home with you today. Psalm 51, verse 10 and 12, 10 through 12 says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. God can restore you no matter how far you've fallen or you feel that you have. Your ability in history with sin is nothing compared to his capacity for redemption. Third and finally, all of this means that intimacy comes from love. Love doesn't come from intimacy, all right? Sometimes we try to find love through being intimate with people. That's not how it works. Intimacy comes through love and submission, okay? Not by behaving impulsively and, and seeking false intimacy. Okay, so the ways that God puts boundaries around our sex lives isn't meant to oppress us, it's meant to liberate us. And all of this really led me to, to think about something that's happened in my life recently. And this may be weird for me to bring up now, given the topic and everything, but I've thought a lot about my family and my story and my parents, actually. Many of you know that a little over a week ago, we lost my mom. She passed away after a long battle with various cancers. And that's why I wasn't here last week. I intended to be. When Kale stepped in at the last minute, we had her one of two funerals last Saturday, and the second funeral was yesterday. And it has been so hard and so rough and brutal. But I've had a lot of time to think. And if you have heard me talk about my parents, you know what a redemption story theirs is. When my mom was 15, she found herself pregnant and um, with, with my dad's baby, like they were dating or whatever. He was 16 and she was 15. And, you know, it was 1974. There were lots of people that, that were saying, you know, take care of this and just get back to school and you'll be fine. And, and they refused. There were lots of people that were like, well, you messed up, but don't, don't double down on that mistake and don't marry that person for sure. Like, and they refused. They got married. They kept the baby who was my sister, who I call the accident. And <laughs> I came along a few years later. My mom was pregnant and terrified 50 years ago. And um, God took them by their own will. He took them and restored them and set them up to create a family, a family that, for which they're the reason I'm even here today. And, and, and my sister and I and, and our whole family is just living like 
we're trying to live for God now in different ways and, and, and trying to show the world like what a blessing God's redemption can be. And, and it's just another reminder of how God can take the darkest and worst moments of anyone's life and redeem and restore you if you are willing to let him. So no matter what you've done or how you've messed up or what you regret or what you're ashamed, whatever, there's nothing you've done to outpace or outsin the reach of God's grace. So I pray that you'll cling to that today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your uh, grace that sustains us. Thank you for the promise of your forgiveness. There's no one that's perfect. There's no one that's without sin. All of us have messed up and fallen, and, and yet you continue to love us and to wait for us to come home, Lord. And so I pray that there are people in this room right now who maybe for the first time in a long time are coming home to you. Lord, we just want more of you. We want more truth. We're done with our opinions and our feelings. Just give us what's true, Lord, and give us the courage to live accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.